Hi everyone, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo, I'm the author of the film review website Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there at Quipster.net. Quipster is spelled with a W, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Today we're going to continue on with the third and final film, at least for a while, regarding films of the 1980s that have an enchanted or magical sword in it. This one is... If you watch the cartoon or read some of the comic book adaptations, normally does have a magical sword. This one barely, barely qualifies. In fact, there's only one scene in which the sword seems to have any kind of power. The film I'm going to be talking about here is called Masters of the Universe. It's an action fantasy. It came out in 1987, PG rated because of the violent content. It's an hour and 46 minutes. Dolph Lundgren is the main star playing He-Man, Frank Langella, as Skeletor, we also have Meg Foster, Billy Barty, Courtney Cox, yes, the one from Friends, Robert Duncan McNeil, John Cipher, Chelsea Fields, and James Tolkien in the film. The director is Gary Goddard, and the screenplay is credited to David O'Dell. Now, obviously, if you know Masters of the Universe, He-Man, whatever you want to call it, you know it started off as a top-selling line of toys, usually action figures that were made by Mattel back in the early 80s, and subsequently got re-released in different forms over the years. Masters of the Universe, the property, proved to be an immensely popular franchise of many sorts throughout the decade of the 1980s. It spawned several animated television cartoon series and this major motion picture release in 1987. This was one of many films of the 1980s to spin off from the toy world first. I mean, we had Transformers and Care Bears and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and which I guess came out in 1990. If you want to consider that the 80s, you can. Although this was the first to do so in a live action format. Unfortunately, the movie, which was made popular by the B-movie film house called the Canon Group or Canon Films, they stepped into the production when the original producers, RKO Pictures, grew disinterested. That proved to be the beginning of the end for He-Man's rabid popularity. This was a critical misfire, a feeble commercial venture, although the franchise as a whole has re-emerged from time to time, popular mostly among nostalgia buffs and young children interested in sword and sorcery related items. The film has a cult following, but I guess I should just stop saying that because no matter how bad a movie is, if it was released a long time ago, somebody somewhere is going to find it eventually and actually like it. So. There are people who actually find Masters of the Universe a worthwhile film, at least entertainment-wise, and even bad movie lovers tend to like it as well. Masters of the Universe starts off in the mythical land of Eternia. That's where the ruthless villain Skeletor, who's played in a deliciously hammy sense by Frank Langella, future Academy Award nominee Frank Langella, Skeletor is managed with the help of a powerful musical cosmic key to capture Castle Grayskull, which is the source for a wealth of magic and power in the region. Skeletor has taken the powerful good sorceress, yes, that's her name, because a lot of characters in the Masters of the Universe have very generic names. Sorceress played by Christina Pickles here. Skeletor has taken her prisoner and has been draining her of her essence in order to channel into his own, and that makes him more powerful as time goes on. However, the great hero of Eternia, He-Man, played by Dolph Lundgren, is still free, and with his cronies, the faithful man-at-war, and his daughter Tila, he seeks to thwart Skeletor's plans for dominion over Eternia and restore Castle Grayskull to its original state. Now, that typically would be a very generic way of describing a lot of the 
plot of the actual Masters of the Universe series, whether it's in cartoon or comic book form or what have you. But there's more to the story here, because the plans go awry when the Cosmic Keys creator, a dwarven creature known as Gwildor, opens up a portal to modern-day Earth with a prototype of the same key for them to escape Skeletor's clutches. The key is lost on arrival to Earth, soon found by a couple of teenagers named Julie and Kevin, played by Courtney Cox and Robert Duncan McNeil from Star Trek Voyager. If you're fans, you know him. They end up activating it, thinking it must be some sort of newfangled musical device. However, using the device alerts Skeletor as to its whereabouts, and once he has pinpointed its location, he sends a band of mercenaries to recover the key and ensnare He-Man, of whom he plans to make an example of in custody in order to break the will of any would-be heroes that are left in Eternia. Masters of the Universe, as I mentioned, is directed by Gary Goddard. This was actually his first time as a feature film director. He was working with the production of a theme park stage show of Conan the Barbarian. Coincidentally, Masters of the Universe's executive producer, Edward R. Pressman, was responsible for bringing Conan the Barbarian to the big screen, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Masters of the Universe is, by and large, a pretty weak fantasy action film, if you're going to take this from a critical point of view. It's full of leaden plotting, some pretty bad acting, and some hokey characterizations that will most likely please no one but the most forgiving of the He-Man mythos. Goddard had nobler intentions with this franchise, so you have to give him a little bit of respect for trying to do something different. Goddard was trying to wrestle the vision of the film away from Mattel's implorations that they make this vehicle a means to market more of their toy lines. He wanted to do something more than that. He concentrated more on aesthetics than storytelling and worked from a script from David O'Dell, who was the co-screenwriter for such films of the early 1980s as The Dark Crystal and Supergirl. Goddard emphasized big set design, some lavish costumes, rubbery makeup, some lighting effects, and lots and lots of sparkly laser and lightning bolt shots to dazzle the eyes, albeit in a low-grade kind of way. It would be Goddard's only feature film that he would direct. He chose to go into production of films and shorts for theme parks, where he started, at least until this year. In 2018, he is the co-director of a film called Broadway 4D, that he directed with Brian Singer. He also wrote the screenplay, by the way. Many liberties are taken between this film and the pre-existing cartoons and comic books, including adding some science fiction elements, such as having He-Man and the other Eternian residents fighting primarily with laser guns instead of the customary sword and armor battles. Due to a lack of interest among studios for producing the proposed $40 million epic that they wanted to make, the budgetary concerns for Masters of the Universe resulted in a scaled-back script that held that all of the action would take place in a modern-day Earth. Once production was underway, director Goddard made great changes to that script. He wanted something grander in scope than the original budget would allow. He wanted to bring more of Eternia, the actual Eternia, into the mix, using this interdimensional device to keep the action contained to a few key locations between these two universes. This also would necessitate more sets, more costumes, and the use of more special effects in order to depict the magic and technology-driven world of Eternia, and the result would be a production that went over budget and it pushed well beyond schedule for a company that 
that was trying its best to keep its head above water financially. But even in those things that it could have been faithful to from the cartoon, which is driving a lot of the fans to go see this film, the film version changes those things. He-Man barely uses his trusty sword of Grayskull, shown here to have little, if any, powers at all in favor of a standard laser pistol. In fact, I'm kind of rethinking why I should choose this as a, an enchanted sword film of the 1980s, given what paltry goods we have here for He-Man's sword. The personalities of the characters are also notably different from the cartoon. Some people have argued that they're not trying to adapt the cartoon, they're just trying to do something with the characters as they existed in the action figure form. I can respect that, I suppose, but He-Man is never shown as being Prince Adam at any point, and maybe that persona doesn't even exist in this realm. Beast Man, relegated to a grunting hole. I could go on and on about how different each character is from how they've been shown before, but... You know, it's kind of a mood issue. I have to grade this on its own terms. It can be pretty annoying, though, to those that expect the film to follow closely in the spirit of the cartoon. Although, treating the film as its own unique entity, there really isn't much here to suggest that complete adherence to existing canon would have made the quality of the film any better. Surprisingly, many fans of all incarnations of the Masters of the Universe still embrace it despite its flaws. Beyond the exorbitant fee for its star, Dolph Lundgren, whose box office appeal had certainly been overvalued, the production had been troubled. It went over budget, beyond the production schedule by quite a bit, which was more than a bit concerning for the Canon Group, who had been teetering on the edge of bankruptcy for years. As He-Man's time on television had begun to wane to make way for newer and more popular properties, the film would end up being released too late to capitalize on the former fervor, and Canon would hardly be in a position to properly market this film that had already cost them far more than they had already been desiring to spend, the budget ballooned from its proposed $16 million to upwards of $26 million, and its three-month shooting schedule ended up extending two additional months. Alas, for all involved, the final box office take for this property that had been made to keep a studio flush with cash to make more pictures was a paltry $17 million. Two years too late to cash in on the toy line's rampant popularity when it was at its peak. Now, the humor of this film is there, not quite as campy as the original cartoon, but it's mainly relegated to traditional fish-out-of-water reactions to things on Earth that these visitors don't have back on their home world, including such things as fried chicken. There's, a, there's this funny scene where Tila is repulsed by the bones that she's eating, even though she likes the taste of the fried chicken, but recoils when she realizes that they're eating something that used to be an animal. There's a feisty James Tolkien in this film brought into the second half of the movie. As the cop on the case, he plays the typical hothead enforcer role that this character actor Tolkien had made quite a career out of doing during the 1980s. Conveniently, or should I say lazily, the Earthling and Eternians all speak the same language despite their difference in customs. One of my big pet peeves. Now, one of the more curious things about Masters of the Universe as a film is its very sterile presentation, despite the fact that events within the film are sweeping and it covers two universes and it deals with high concept issues such as time travel and tipping the balance of good and evil for all eternity, the war feels more like a minor skirmish among small specialized factions. Part of this comes from the fact that He-Man's able to take on Skeletor and his minions with little more than a handful of allies, some of which aren't particularly useful in battle, 
And the other reason is the lack of extras that are within the film. The entire city on Earth that the film takes place in is curiously devoid of many people, save for Julie and Kevin, their immediate friends, and a few cops. You'd think that the futuristic and militaristic invasion that's right there on the city streets would gather at least a few spectators, if not the majority of the inhabitants of the entire city, to witness. Now, it's clear that Masters of the Universe is a derivative film from the very Superman-like opening credits and the theme song that also echoes Superman to the Star Wars-type confrontations. In fact, Return of the Jedi is cribbed off of quite a bit here, including Skeletor's powers, very much like a combination of Darth Vader and the Emperor. And some people, including comic book legend John Byrne, cite Jack Kirby's The New Gods comic book as a primary source for what Goddard was trying to do. Goddard was a fan of those comics, but he says it was kind of a coincidence, and it is a coincidence, given that the film probably cribs from material that had already used Jack Kirby as an influence. The film very much feels like a low-budget version of another big-screen Star Wars-tinged film that's based on existing franchise, that is Flash Gordon, with its cheesy sets and costumes, juvenile presentation. It also has a beefy blonde hero who can't really act much beyond his physical presence. Coincidentally, the makers of Masters of the Universe wanted to dub over Dolph Lundgren's thick Swedish accent, and that would have followed in the footsteps of Flash Gordon yet again, because Sam Jones, the star of Flash Gordon as Flash Gordon, had been dubbed over when he left the project after falling out with the producer. He refused to come back to redub his lines in post, so an impersonator was brought in in order to finish his dialogue. But the makers of Masters of the Universe decided to just go with it. They were already overextended on this film. They just wanted to get it out there into theaters before even more of its popularity waned. At this point, it should be clear from this review that this is a film that is a limited appeal project. I would say its appeal is strictly limited to unwavering fanboys of Masters of the Universe and perhaps those looking to see some early work by future television stars like Courtney Cox and Robert Duncan McNeil. Dolph Lundgren fans will probably also want to give it a look, although this is definitely one of his worst roles as an actor. He displays little screen presence, and his He-Man seems to be kind of a minor character in the film until the climax. There's some stiffness with the stunts and choreography. Dolph Lundgren did all of his own stunts and moves since no one could match his physical stature. And some of Lundgren's lifeless mumbling through the dialogue. Subtitles are a plus if you have that option. If you enjoy low-budget sci-fi of dubious quality featuring squabbles on the level of your typical professional wrestling match, maybe you'll get more mileage out of Masters of the Universe than most. So as I mentioned last week when I talked about this film, I saw this movie in the theaters with my brother who at five years old was a big fan of Masters of the Universe. I kind of watched it with him sometimes, so I was familiar with it, but what I saw, I really hated. I, I found it an endurance test at the time. I actually watched it again back in 2006 in order to review it for my website. I liked it more. I, I wouldn't say I hated it. I actually have a little bit more respect for it, but I wouldn't say this is a good movie by any long shot. And now in my rewatch of this, some, I guess, 30 years later from the original time that I watched this, I haven't really changed my opinion much from the second time that I watched it. So, And I wouldn't say it's completely unwatchable, but it's also a film I can't really recommend very highly outside of those people that I mentioned just a moment ago. So I'm going to give Masters of the Universe from 1987 two stars out of four. Two stars on my scale means that it's lacking something vital that would keep it 
a worthwhile endeavor for most people. And I think that what it's really lacking here is any kind of cohesive vision, a good script. And I think the budget really hampered this film to a large extent. I think Goddard really wanted to make something special out of it and probably would have pulled off something more interesting but for the fact that he had to make a lot of compromises in order to even get this out there. Unfortunately, those compromises also compromised the film, and a lackluster effort is resulting. I do want to mention, though, and a lot, not a lot of people know this, if you watch the end credits all the way to the very end, for, just for a few seconds, there's a very brief stinger that sets up for a sequel that was developed. They actually had a script, and they were ready to go. They were going to keep a lot of the same sets, but it ended up never getting made. In fact, you know, this one did so poorly, they weren't going to do it again. And a lot of the elements of that sequel ended up being made into the film, the Jean-Claude Van Damme film, Cyborg. So a little bit of trivia for you there. And that film came out in 1989, so I guess I will probably review it on this podcast eventually. I have seen that one, but not for a very, very long time. Anyway, thank you everyone for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review. If, if you have your own opinions about Masters of the Universe, I'm sure that a lot of people who are fans of this and are probably scouring the internet for more fan takes will come to this and probably be disappointed and want to take me to task. You can find my contact information on my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. As far as next time, since we already had a film that was based on a toy line, I'm going to continue on with a trio of films from the 1980s that are based on toys. And so I'm going to continue that on with Transformers the Movie. Yes, the Transformers the Movie from 1986, that Japanese-American sci-fi film that uh, has a huge cult following, apparently. So I will be covering that next week. So if you want to hear that, click that subscribe button and you'll get that episode. I also want to mention that I do cover some new films that are out in theaters. You can search for the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Any place where you're listening to this right now, just do a search for it and you will find it. I haven't been keeping up with that one as much, but now that we're getting into some really cool movies, I assume I'll be going to the theaters a lot more and we'll bring those reviews to you shortly. Until next time, thanks everyone for listening and joining me on this journey around the world. Thank you.